0: In this episode, Ryan and I discuss the conceptual origins of whole life insurance and how they make IBC so different from conventional financial strategies. And we had fun doing so. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Bank of Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. Mr. Griggs, how have you been, sir? I'm great. It's... uh...
1: Early October, so it's no longer 150 degrees out here in the DFW area. <laughs> so I'm enjoying that. Yeah? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's quite pleasant. So here, this is uh, actually it's mid-October. We're just a couple of weeks away from uh, the uh, October event. So this... One week. One week. This recording should be released on Friday the 20th.
1: Yeah. You want to share some updates about the uh, expected attendance? I mean, it's it's going to be a full house, huh?
0: Uh yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think uh to my knowledge there's 138 people registered. I think that includes you know my office and a couple of agents and so that would be over 100 well over 100 just clients. Yeah.
1: And I was telling you earlier before we went on that I still have a few of of mine who have uh inquired about attending, so I think there'll be at least I think there'd be around 150 people in the room.
0: Yeah, well, Jess and I have a little wager going. I think 140, <laughs> <laughs> and she says 150.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm excited. You and I were talking earlier this week about you know the talks that we're going to give and just overall plans for it, and you know, you kind of I don't know how we brought it up, but uh, talking about like what exactly this it is. It was something like
0: this. What are you going to talk about, James? If you put your talk together and like, no, if you put your talk together, no, that's how it kind of started.
1: <laughs> No, <laughs> what are you going to talk about? No, we've had several calls. I have, we've had, we both had a pretty good idea of what the, of what the content will be. But, uh, no, it's like in, in thinking about what it is we're doing. I mean, it's not a conventional, it's not a sales event, right? It's not like here, sign up on your way out the door kind of deal. So it's not only, it's not that uh, it's not like a just a knowledge receiving event,
0: you know. We're not not just teaching entirely an educational event.
1: Yeah, not meant to be just knowledge transfer, right? All like right. sit there and soak it in. I mean, that, there's maybe there's some of that. Maybe somebody learns something new or thinks about something in a different way. I mean, hope that's part of it, but it's not only that. You know,
0: it's not a, a client reward, even though it's a client only event. Um, so there's an element of that that they get to experience something that. Non-clients do not. But it's not only uh, for an experience that no one else can experience. Right. And then there's the social
1: element. I mean, all those different people, beautiful venue.
0: The uh, social event prior to the pre-mixer and then and a social event after the after party.
1: Yeah. So it's so there's elements of that too. I mean, so there's all these different uh, characteristics that are coming together. I think it's going to be really cool. The last one was really good. This one um i i think will be even better so i'm excited for it and i and i think it's very unusual i don't think there's the i don't think this venue this kind of meeting is a thing that happens really otherwise other people may have some sort of event but i mean for i don't
0: know this one seems unique to me but i I, I, i'm excited me too i think it is absolutely is unique you know i mean uh done a lot of events over the years and None of them have been identical. You know, we would bring Nelson in uh, and have him present over one day or two days. And, of course, he would, you know, teach the same thing, becoming your own banker, just dang near right out of the book. But all the anecdotes and analogies, you know, spread throughout there. He never said the same thing exactly twice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I've done lots of events and are They've all been a little different. They've all been a little unique. And I'm really excited about this. I don't believe that um, that the opportunity is ever going to present itself again to have all of the speakers in the room and even the even the guests. Um, you know, let's say eighty percent of them or hundred percent of them come back the next year, but then there'll be other new people too.
1: Yeah, good yeah.
0: combination.
1: Absolutely, new people and returning. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and so it's. Little window of opportunity to participate in a very unique um, event that just doesn't happen that often. Yeah. It's never happened before. I'm, <clears throat> I don't mean to go on and on about it, but I'm just telling you the the two guest speakers they're just never going to be in, in the, the same, same room. room with unless there's an agent training kind of a deal. I mean, there's they're they're never going to be in the same room where there's just you know the the all American general public, the the policy holders, the people that are practicing the infinite banking concept. Not gonna. There's not gonna be another opportunity. I don't think so. There's. I've never seen it happen. Yeah. I'm very. I'm like. I'm very blessed. I feel. You know. Thankful that. Um, I could entice them to participate. To yeah. Participate. And it's kind of a challenge
1: to me too. I mean, you and I talked about like what the goals that we want to achieve, and I think that the same what we talked about in that context also applies like for this show. Cause to, to my mind, and I've know I've told you before, I probably said it on here, like I've this fear of repeating myself and feeling uh, generic or feeling like we're going over the same thing over and over again. And sure. on the, in the one sense, it's like rep- there is a, a, a value to repetition and to going back over the basics. Everybody who's practicing IBC, not everybody, Virtually everyone who's practicing IBC or is involved some way is familiar with the phenomenon of reading Nelson's book over and over again. Like there, there's a point to repetition. So some of that's okay, but then you know, there's a desire. At least I have like a desire to go further, be I don't know, relatively original. You know, expand further, deepen further. Uh, so it, having an event like this, having this podcast, is like a good feedback mechanism for me to continue to push further right to like go deeper explain better cuz there's still features of like my process that are not necessarily bad like I don't think there's anything wrong with it but it's curious to me that you know we go through we have this you know someone will come to me they've watched the podcast they've watched the mechanic series they've read Nelson's book we've gone through an advisory process you know there's a few hours prior to getting to an application and then and almost simultaneously an illustration review and there's still this element of surprise. Like, oh, that's how cash value will grow over time or ah, like there's still that even after all that initial buildup there's still moments We should just like, write
0: a book and then they'll read the book and watch the series and listen to the <laughs> to the uh Bank of Life podcast, podcast. Yeah.
1: Well, I think some of that'll help <laughs> but what I, my point is that there's still this opportunity, room for opportunity to, I don't know, mitigate the surprise factor or like to clarify things in such a way so that seeing cash value growth on a page isn't surprising. Like that just would follow naturally, right? There's still some space between here and that point to make up. And so I, I think that it's worthy is my point to continue. To be repetitive? Well, (laughs) no, not just to be repetitive, but to refine. And to sharpen and, like, convey Mm -hmm. or maybe develop a a better appreciation for nuanced elements of what it is we're doing with IBC and with Whole Life that maybe isn't fully understood, you know, from the get-go. Or even after all of this
0: exposure to these ideas. I I get it. You know, the – I don't want to say a large part, but, you know, our conversations about the event and our talks have been filled with – you know not being overly repetitive you know i don't want to stand up there and quote nelson for an hour um you, yeah, know, you as do. An example <laughs> uh, no not necessarily but i do absolutely want to convey and and remind myself and others mm-hmm. uh some very straightforward simple uh truths about the infinite banking concept that it's easy to forget or mm-hmm. easy to um, get, I don't want to say get lost, but but overlook, step right over the very simple things, looking for the complex mm-hmm. uh, missing element thats that we're all looking for to, to take us from here to there, as you say. And we're all, that distance for all of us is different. And changes. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, might fully grasp an idea or a concept and and, and I'm all in with life insurance and, and banking. And then six months later, I don't know how many times this happened. It's like, oh my gosh, I overlooked that. I didn't even think about that. But I heard it. And then when you look at it again, how could you possibly miss that? I've been shaving for 50 years. What? There's a nose on my face. You know, uh, so- Bridging that gap. How do you help? How do we bridge that gap from here to there? And it's different for everyone. Um, So it is a challenge. And you don't want to be repetitive. You want to bring value. You you don't want, um, you know, to use lazy words like, um, I'm doing currently, you know. So, but let me tell you what, because I've got my talk 30,000 foot mm-hmm. overview mapped out and it's changed a little and it I was thinking to myself just earlier this week what I'm so grateful I'm personally very grateful for the op- for the opportunity to be able to go and speak about the infinite banking concept mm. and and I'm not just saying that and I mean that and and here's one of the reasons why it it makes me uh, reflect on what I'm going to say and where I'm coming from. And it forces me to reread Nelson's work and listen to him and then go just mentally through what I'm hearing and what I'm reading yeah. and then drawing it out and... and and considering the application that that going forward or that we and I have done in my life, I mean it's a real blessing to to go deep into uh nelson's work and and as I say that, it's so simple. he says it over and over it's so simple. I don't know why we jump over sometimes the the really simple, easy, apparent, obvious things that are pointed out and laid out, and we're still looking for that. Thing that's going to close the gap for us. So
1: yeah, like the other shoot to drop kind of deal.
0: Mm-hmm. Or I'm just missing. You know, if I just if I if you Ryan, if you just made the right presentation. <laughs> okay, if you just drew enough squiggly lines in in to convey to me uh, whatever it is that that I need to to close that gap. So if you do a really good presentation. You know, I might get it.
1: Yeah. All right. All right, so you have some skepticism <laughs> about that mentality.
0: Uh, no, I'm. Well, my point is that I think that that is a real mentality, and I'm just saying mm-hmm. you and like James, if you just if you say the right things, if you just give the right presentation, and this is some of the you know self reflection too, right? Um, you will help somebody or the listener is like, I'll get that and. That may be true that something could be said in a any presentation, and points are made and received, or you know, first grasped and it's like, oh, oh, dots are connected. But you know, if uh, if it was that dang easy to convey this, Nelson wouldn't have took ten hours.
1: Mm.
0: You know, and how do you how do you go and uh, listen to Nelson? five times, six times, seven. How do you read becoming your own banker three or four or five or six times and you still walk away with something new that you didn't hear previously? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's going on there? What's not connecting?
1: Yeah, well, it is a lot. I mean, it is a complete paradigm shift a transformation in economic thinking, I think, for people. So there's... It's real economic thinking. Yeah. And the Yeah, to like the idea of getting up in front of a crowd or writing a book or, or whatever the form of expression to say that I'm going to go teach IBC. Like, I don't think that that can be done in a, in a more efficient fashion than Nelson did. I mean, and there's a sense too in which IBC is so much a part of like who Nelson was. It's like, in some way, in order to convey or attempt to convey the IBC, you're going to miss the mark because it's not, coming from the source, so there's a necessary degree of separation uh, that'll happen, and that'll maybe present the opportunity for new confusion or distraction, but maybe also the opportunity for some refinement or sharpening. But it's going to be different than the original exposition is and was from Nelson directly. Absolutely. is kind of the point. But I think that (coughs) given that whole context, that there's still plenty of of opportunity of headspace of whatever you want to call it to explore the quality of the product itself more. You know, there's that, I think I've mentioned on here before and I've certainly talked to you about it, but that Jim Rohn quote, you know, the, the interested want to know, will it work for me? The fascinated want to know how, you know, I, I really like that. Like the idea of being fascinated to the point of wanting to know more than somebody who's just interested would need to, Mm um, and just what I was mentioning to you before the show, what I thought about over this prior week uh, is the the nature of, of value generation in the contract itself. I mean, it's almost like there's a, it's not almost, it is the, the way it is, is that value is uh, manufactured, generated, created in this particular kind of property in a way that's so distinct from the way we refer to financial value of other property. Right. That we're we're constantly, you know, the house is worth what somebody else will pay. The, you know, the value of the stock market holdings is worth whatever you could liquidate for, you know, less taxes and fees if they're in a tax qualified. Like we're all used to this idea of value being contingent on what somebody else in the market will pay, and you don't know what that is, so there's this inherent uncertainty. Uh and then, and the and the idea too that things should be purchased on the expectation of appreciation that the that there's going to be some increase in the value of what somebody else will you know in the market. So an uncertain, non guaranteed, you know, expectation of appreciation, and this is just what one is supposed to do, right? You you invest, you buy it, and that's and so we have this. We're so we have this like intuitive or conditioned or trained kind of understanding of what it means to have property of like a value of to accumulate capital or to accumulate net worth at whatever resolution you want to think about it. Right. Whereas in whole life, the va- the, the nature of value generation is so much different. Where we're harnessing this relationship between a future cash flow, a future value and its present value and it works that that can happen because of this bizarre fact of life, you know called the law of large statistical facts, empirical statistical facts or regularities combined with mortality of all things, right? Life and literal life and death. Like Life and death happens in in such a way over a large enough number of numbers that if you can observe that and uh, uh, track and acknowledge those empirical regularities, then you can establish pricing relationships between now and future cash flows in order to engineer this value growth, this ownership as equity, this capital financial value in this contract like in, and the contract is not even really the property i mean it is technically the property itself right you own the policy but it's not like the value is in the paper and the ink on the page right like right. the the the, pro, the contract just enumerates the underlying property which is the agreement like this binding legal arrangement with this company like this mutual that consists of other people doing the same thing I like get that's so
0: bizarre. It just introduced the idea of mutuality. Right. But that's so <laughs> with all of these numbers. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so there and there's a then you apply the law of equity, like a very old common law British common law type philosophy principle where there's this moral uh, admonishment that that the individual should in that arrangement in this context of paying premiums for these specifically priced future cash flows on the basis of the law of large numbers on the basis of the fact of mortality and the observation of life and death. Like the idea on top of all that, that the individual who participates in it is entitled to has like some moral or legally enforceable claim to ownership in that whole operation, which is compensated by a dividend or like the important part of this is that you have a, like a moral justification grounded in British common law for the origination of a cash flow, a dividend participation in the financial surplus that that collective generates. Well, when it generates it right year to year uh, and for that cash flow to also contribute to the additional increase in value. I mean, there's there's an elegance like when people first learn. Austrian economics, you know, you go way down the rabbit hole, Mises Institute, read Mises, Rothbard, Human Action, Man, Economy, and State, and go through all this. You know, there's this sense of, like, for some people have reported, like, when you get the gist of it, when you get the general features to kind of stand back and be like, wow, there's an elegance to the integration of all those different philosophical and logical deductions. And it's really impressive. I get that same feeling, in reflecting on the nature and origins of a whole life contract and to say that. So then you, you, you stack all that against this tendency online to present whole life or to present its features in the context of just conventional advising. And I'm like, man, you're missing. So you miss so much. I like to just because the, ink on the screen or on the paper you know is shaped in the same fashion like just because numbers look alike it does not mean that the the quality of those figures is the same and I think there's a very unique compelling quality of the values that pertain to whole life death benefit and cash value that um, that if you can comprehend are extremely compelling is my point
0: point. And, and if you if one could comprehend these things You know, bringing in British, you know, common law of equity, the idea and the concept of equity, the idea and the concept of mutuality that includes morality. Mm -hmm. And then the number, you know, the uh, law, the law of large numbers and then the idea of statistical life um, averages and accounting, putting all that math together so if somebody can grasp all of that you know they they've gone through the exposure the initial you know exposure to this idea of the infinite banking concept and you know because you might you will generate an annual statement if you have a life insurance policy and it might look similar might not look to an, similar to an annual statement from, you know, an investment company. Of course, it'll be a different format, but they're all just numbers on a page, right? So if I can go through all that, just ruminate on the, uh, the morality, the, mutual al- the mutuality, the idea of life expectancy and, and medical underwriting, statistical life expectancy, and actual life expectancy. And so I, I would back up and see the construct at some time and just be in awe yeah right okay so um if you if you can convey that I mean isn't that a challenge to uh, to, to share uh, and explore all of this information in a in a in a way that's that you can consider beyond the financial construct no question to get to that point it's like wow there's really something here
1: yeah. Yeah. Do
0: you think if somebody could go through all that, that would close the gap for them?
1: You know? I think it would help, yeah. I mean, different people are going to have their different light bulb moments, you know, certain particular things that really make you go, oh, wow. Yeah.
0: What was what was some of the things for you that so, made you go, oh, wow. The, I mean, you know, young Mr. Economist. I mean, yeah. come on. So the first thing, and, it, and the internal
1: mechanics to this were not immediately obvious to me, but this was like what really sparked it. I think it was twenty fifteen. Trying to think of when exactly this was. It was either very late 2015 or very early 2016. In going through becoming your own banker for the first time, read the book in full in the night, right? And but in equipment financing in particular, that cumulative net outlay column, to just flip from page to page and see that number go up, that was the first, like, huh? Okay. What's and cumulative net outlay? I mean, I understood what that meant. So to have seven figures, you know, two million and change, depending on which illustration you look at, to see that much in cumulative net outlay. So cash flow, net of premiums paid in to the individual over the course of a lifetime, with conservative assumptions, right? Mortality at was it eighty five? You know, started in just early twenties. I mean, this is not thirty. 30 there were there were no grand assumptions there right and in fact and then so then you a little layer deeper in the narrative itself where he's explaining you know that 25 grand per year in pua that maximum is not getting paid year 6 and beyond some pua is getting paid but you're not hitting the maximum the dividend is assumed to be taking care of the base premium after that in that fifth year and beyond so like the what this presentation consists of is a lot of conservative maybe you might say suboptimal type assumptions for a purpose right the per, the point was to show a change in the cash flow from associates finance to a life insurance company at the same magnitude, right, fifteen hundred dollars a month uh, in payments for the equipment. Um, so there were there, there were reasons for the maybe relatively suboptimal type assumptions that relative to the context of like today, I and mean, if I want to, I want the goal being to maximize PUA premium payment for as long as possible, for instance. But even then, to show these big cumulative net outflay, outlays to the individual, and for that number to go up as a result of what the individual did, like that idea, right? That I'm, by by me uh, changing my action, I'm engineering a a, a different, in this case, in the case of an increase in this cash value year to year, and thereby, potentially, engineering an increase in my late life cash flow, all post-tax, Right, like that, you start to add those layers, and I, that was what to me was like, okay, what's going, what's that? I wanted that, more. That's
0: why I did it. I wanted more. Uh, yeah, in twenty fifteen. So, and then okay, and there's a you know, you look, uh, equipment finance was the really favorite part of the book to me, and still is with an even distribution of age classes. It was about five hundred thousand in cash value. Each illustration yeah. from one to two, two to three, three to four, four to five. And then, you know, and you can read it in there, but <clears throat> that thing was so inefficient. Mm. <laughs> that policy was, I say so inefficient. It could have been more efficient. Yeah, um, And it was eye-opening to me, too. But, okay, so when you go through that and you want to know more, um, what did you do? You know, how did you seek this more?
1: Before a uh, fully and I still don't fully get it, don't get me wrong, but before kind of understanding why cash value would grow in that fashion, mm-hmm. before getting to the bottom of that rabbit hole, I immediately went online and looked for Nelson. So found his, he was still doing his seminars at the time. Mm-hmm. This was in Northern California. I think it was in May of, in May of 16. Yeah. And found that found that he was doing a talk in January of that year, attended in May of that year, and so then it went deeper from deeper and deeper from there,
0: yeah, <clears throat> well, that was the next best thing that anyone could have done is listen to Nelson Live right I mean um and then it's just been Katie Barr the door since yeah,
1: the capital element understanding the the value understanding cash value mm-hmm. as capital mm-hmm. that's a big that was a big
0: level deeper yeah. well, you were. I don't want to say struggling, but you're deep into the um, Austrian theory of capital. Even then, yeah,
1: it's still the subject of my dissertation, and that it, it's yeah to see the uh, the economic integration has been a big deal, and then to explain that to clients. Like I got an individual uh, going going through the advisory process now, and you know mid thirties. Um, Yep, so six and successful, works in technology, runs a company as a startup, this kind of stuff. Um, for his age makes a fairly good living just statistically speaking and as I find so often with many people but uh maybe in particular people who have done relatively well in their income generation, in their profession, in their economic on the economic side of life, there are, there's this importation of Terminology from the conventional financial sector, right? And there's so there's a a process of unfolding, unwinding that, sort of not unlearning, but just putting that in a box over to the side and learning the te- the, the new, meaningfully new and different terminology in whole life. And one thing I've found it that is helpful in explaining that from like a substantive strategic perspective is the capitalization versus investment dichotomy right like we're the purpose of this is to retain secure and 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 grow value that you have access to where the whole point is to maintain access to it right whereas in investing yes we want value accumulation that's fundamentally the idea but the question is control right the the purpose of investing is to give up control over that financial value to somebody else, on the conditional expectation that there's going to be some cash flow in the future. Okay, great, fine, but but to for there to be this meaningfully, conceptually distinct domain of financial activity, that to that has to that is very compelling to me. Like to structure thing, and it's my point in bringing all this up was that has been reported to me as helpful and effective in structuring thinking around what this is right? like how it fits with the other things and that is really as some, some a client described it to me as a slippery slope earlier this week he's like you know once i see the numbers it's always the once i see the you no know, this may be a slippery slope. i may want to go all in i'm like yeah probably. Just show me the right <laughs> illustration
0: and i'll go all in huh well
1: i'm smiling on the other side you know because like I can kind of by now understand or intuit by the questions people ask or the, just the language they choose, the degree of understanding. And you can kind of peg the degree of understanding to the intensity of one's commitment, right, to the desire to pay premium. Right. And it, it's independent of someone's particular income level, but you can kind of get a sense of, okay, well, if Man, that
0: could be applied to anything, right?
1: Oh, of course. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if someone's really into it, well, then you'd expect, you know, action, proportionally substantial action, right? Um, and so it's always, you know, when people start to voice that or acknowledge or observe that hesitation or that feeling of like, this is changing my thinking, like, this is changing how. I'm going to treat my cash flows and that's pretty, that can be a big, that's a big deal to people, right? To have that effect. Not many things, not many bodies of thought cause that, uh, that, that fundamental or that systemic of a reconsideration, you know, for your own finances, for your own cash flows. Uh, and so it's a cool thing to hear happen. And then, you know, I talk often in terms of a percentage of income allocated to premium, that number, So it starts to go up to a a certain, up to a certain level. Um, And then you see that reflect in the premium numbers. And of course, the higher the premium, the better the cash value growth. So like the, 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 yeah. Anyway, my, the broader, my broader point, going back to the very beginning of this is I think it would help people. It certainly helped me to have a more, technically accurate understanding of the internal makeup and structure of these policies, what the textbooks, what academia refers to as the pricing of life insurance. It's really a explanation of the makeup of a contract. Like if if people understood that better, I think it would help. um,
0: I think that would sharpen the whole image. I I think that that would help some people, you know, diving down on the technical aspects of life insurance. And it'll probably help as many people as it wouldn't help. Oh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that, but I mean that that is. I mean, the non-technical person doesn't want to get drug out into the world of technology and beaten to death, right?
1: And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying any of this is necessary. <laughs> well, no, right? Like you the, don't have to become a master uh, of, of no. actuarial science to implement IBC. I
0: I completely agree, but th- this we're speaking really um, generally of the challenge to convey the work of Nelson, to convey the idea of the infinite banking concept. You know, I mean, that's that's the challenge. That's the challenge. And then whether it's technical, emotional, or anecdotal, or, uh, or mathematically, you know, mm-hmm. uh, trying to con- convey this idea, I mean, that's just the challenge. And to me, um, you can't really leave the math out, you know. Uh, you can go really deep into the mathematics of a life insurance policy, and especially whenever you have the law of large numbers and mortality, right? And we were talking earlier about this idea in the the British law that all of this information, the statistical information of life expectancy comes from Uncle Guido, right? <laughs> the ten year um, you know census mm-hmm. and more accurately would be the life insurance company's experience. Yeah. And then I wonder how much they share that information between each other, mm. which is Neil.
1: My understanding <laughs> so far is that the the mortality tables published by the government form the basis of individual state mandated yep. non-forfeiture rate calculation right so that serves as the as the sort of a like a price floor you know the minimum basis and then that individual companies likely use their own data for internal price internal pricing that of course conforms with and meets the whatever thresholds are set in place on an individual yep. state by state level but then i would imagine there's degrees of flexibility above those regulated minimums in order to price things potentially more in line with the company's own experience. And I think that as to what degree other companies publish and share this stuff, like my reading is like the major huge number reinsurer type companies, you know, with holdings globally will publish, they'll, they'll like internally hire a private type entity to perform analyses. And then, uh, and, you know, a, a sort of groomed uh, selection of that data is published.
0: Mm, massaging a that, some numbers is what I'm hearing. Th-
1: yeah. yeah. I, I think the release of like the raw data comp- within company, I think that's probably not the, yep. th- the thing that happens, but like these companies of a certain degree of repute put will publish these, you know, various kind of reports to comment on the nature of trends in mortality data. And I think I think there's enough, but from the state regulation, my sense is that there's enough from the state regulation point of view and whatever information sharing there is within the industry plus a century or more of experience for the industry for there to be something like a general type consensus in the pricing. Like I don't, it doesn't seem to me like you're going to go like from one company to the next, there's going to be some wild difference you know, in the nature of, let's say, cash value growth over time. Yeah. Um, now that I think, there's differences in the individual quality of the product, right? Like the terms and conditions governing the various features, company to company, and I think there's a meaningful selection margin there. Like part of what I think the a, a focus, or at least the more careful consideration of the structure of a policy can do is is point out that there's only so much difference between the companies right like you can spend all day and it's a it's a wonderful like resistance post that if you want to grab onto and like delay action delay getting started delay paying <laughs> a premium you know you can get hung up on the idea like i'm going to compare you know every you know go through the 250 page annual financial filing of the various companies yeah. and you know make it a big issue But I think I think there are meaningful criteria on which to compare to compare companies. But from the valuational, like from the the cash value growth dynamic perspective, I don't think you're going to find a major difference.
0: Uh, You know, the I agree. Math is math. And there are some only so many bonds in the world when you pay a premium that money is the property of the life insurance company they have to put that value to work to meet the future obligations i know it's simple but not one person ever in the life insurance industry explained this to me Hmm. not one so it's been a revelation for me over the years and i'm still in awe. that is not my money that belongs to the life insurance company they have to put that value to work to meet their future obligations I'm going to die you're going to graduate we're all going to graduate and we're all you know subject to get mad and quit right and then there's a cash value that's guaranteed that I can get mad and quit and walk away with now it accumulated partially guaranteed and then partially non-guaranteed as a dividend not overlooking that at all but once a dividend is paid it's paid Right. the value of that dividend is not going to go down in the future as compared to a stock dividend. Mm. I mean, I might get paid a dividend and might reinvest the dividend in the stock, You know, the dividend reinvestment program. All right. um, that stock value can still go up and down. All right. Not so with life insurance. Um, and so there's that idea that it's not my money. It's the value of the life insurance company. But contractually, I can get mad and quit and walk away or I can collateralize that. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, um, that's, that's pretty dang powerful to me. In the financial world, thirty-something years, we can we can get lost in the technicals of uh, anything. We can get lost in the technicals of the market,
1: mm-hmm.
0: right? We can get lost in the math, quote unquote, of Wall Street. It, you're not going to out math a life insurance company. <laughs> it not going to happen, right? Now we can we can dig our feet in the ground and 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 dis- disagree with different you know, ideas, uh, fundamentals, philosophy or whatever to postpone making a decision or to justify ourselves from making or not making a decision. There's no question about that. But there are so many bonds, you know, to purchase when you pay the money to the life insurance company in the form of a premium. They have to put that capital to work to meet the future obligations. There's a limited amount of places that they can put that money. And there's only so many bonds out there. Mm -hmm. So you have all these life insurance companies Tracking down the bonds, tracking down the real estate. And it's all math, and there's some variable uh, within the product design of a life insurance company. You know, they can hide costs and margins, and you can make things up here, or there. You can support the dividend from other uh, sources in the enterprise. I don't know how many times these big life insurance companies have sold off very profitable arms of. Uh, or assets that they own to support a dividend, so things can happen, mm-hmm. right? Um, but when you look at the philosophical differences of the life insurance company, they do exist, right? Is and we can even even into the infinite banking world. You know, some of these life insurance companies don't want you to borrow. They don't want you to exercise your guaranteed right, sir, to collateralize that policy. Yeah, wonder why. You know, I get it. They don't, they don't have tellers and they're not alone. They don't have a loan department. You know, it's a service. I get it. And if they have hundreds of thousands of policyholders and a, a, just a, a moderate fraction of them wanting to exercise their right to collateralize the policy. I mean, I understand that that, that there's a lot of similarities in the life insurance companies you know they they all work on the same mortality tables they all have the same distribution cost whether you're paying a an agency system an imo system or a banking system or a brokerage house the distribution cost is the same the investment returns are relatively same the further out you go of course the greater um point that the greater the the results of similarity occur right, but what happens when a little company makes some bad decisions because of philosophy and then they get financially upside down and have to have a hedge fund out of Canada to buy them <laughs> right so these These principles are true these yeah. these fundamental facts are facts there's a limited amount of capital there's a limited amount of places to put that capital. But the investment guru at a life insurance company, one can be different from the other. You know, you get the, the, the board of directors and the, the management of a life insurance company, the, the decisions can be different. So I think ph- philosophy is very important. You know, technical, yeah, technically all life insurance is the same, technically. I don't care if you're male, female, 20 years old, 30 years old, or 60 years old. the the cost of the death benefit is all the same Hmm. when you technically go through it and look at the math. Um, But the challenge is conveying the idea what, if I'm going to go from here, wherever I'm at currently, to understanding to the point where, you know, I don't care what the markets do or don't do, and I don't care what my brother-in-law says about the gargantuan premiums that i'm paying in his perspective right um how do you how do you close that ground
1: yeah well part of it to me going back to that capitalization and investment framework is to to make the point that there is a this is a systematic difference you know like trying to trying to market whole life or other permanent life type products as you know, an arrow in the quiver, a tool in the toolbox, you know, the conservative part of the portfolio. However, it's communicated in order to make it all seem like this is just one other option in the set of conventional options. I, th- I think that's unfortunate. Like, no, you should say that this is, yeah, the, the, a fundamental theme in IBC is that there is a stark distinction between what the conventional approach is and, and this alternative, like there is a difference. It does matter. It is, it is pretty dramatic, right? Like we're, we are talking about a substantial percentage of income. You know, we're talking about multiple years of premium payment. We're taking a lifetime perspective, even beyond like, this is a lot, this is different, you know, and, and you can, you know, the scale of your income may, you know, if you have it, if you earn a lot, you get a lot of cash flow. then a, a nicely suited system may consist of a big premium number, like a number bigger than any other number that you might deal with, you know, in transactions in your otherwise ordinary economic life. Like there's a lot, you know? And so I, I think part of the, I think one way to help make a connection between, you know, I'm interested or I'm i'm interested or ignorant and on the one hand and i'm committed let's go on the other is to point out that yeah there this is this is definitely different and i don't think people should shy away from that is my point
0: i I don't either i think that you know when you refer to the the investment world and in and trying to place or placing life insurance especially nelson's work yes the the just the infinite bank concept In becoming your own banker, yep, we're using life insurance. There's no question. Dividend paying whole life insurance issued by a mutual company. And when the the quote-unquote guru, the financial person places that, tries to put it into the narrative of financial planning or the investment world, it is exactly speaking – I mean, that's the evidence of their not being able to close the gap. Mm. They're trying to put this life insurance into their framework of understanding, Right, yeah. and they're conveying it in the in the interest rates, you know, being dumbed down to the lowest common denominator, or I'm improving it. See, they can't, they can't <laughs> finish the, they can't close the gap for themselves. Yeah. Okay, much less close the gap for others or help close the gap for others, and it shows it. And when you first uh, opened up this conversation whenever you speak with people and you hear the language that they use, yeah, you can tell what they're reading or what they're listening to or what, or what track they're running on. And, and maybe even a little bit of what they might understand and a little bit of what they don't understand. Um, I mean, the struggle is real to wrap our mind around this. Yeah, we can look at numbers on the page. I can see a cash value go up five hundred thousand over, you know, four different, five different times over four, five different illustrations. Yeah, I can see that. And then, well, technically, how's that happen? You know, the non-technical person may not give a dang how that happens, <laughs> right? Where the technical person, they want to know exactly. Wait, Nelson paid the. The base premium with the dividend. The dividend didn't equal $15,000 until the 12th year. You know, what's really going on there? Oh, that happened 23 years ago. I mean, it's exactly what I spoke about last October in Fort Worth, Texas. The changes in the industry that have occurred since Nelson published the book in 2000. Mm -hmm. You know, just the CSO tables, exactly, you know, the life expectancy that's counted and tabulated by uncle guido hell he's killing us if he'd get off our back we might live longer okay i'm just saying um it's a challenge to convey right the power and whether you're technical you're non-technical it i agree with you, you should have a fundamental understanding enough of an understanding of life insurance so you can understand the structure i know in the industry i get beat up all the time i'll get you're getting lost in the weeds james talking about structure no the hell i'm not <laughs> just because you whomever you are uh feel like that's off into the weeds of structure let me tell you why i don't believe i'm getting lost in the weeds of structure because you just throw out an illustration that looks good for five, six, seven, eight years if nothing changes, when you know damn well everything's going to change in the future. And then you put that son, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, say, you put that soul in the position where the death benefit goes down, they can't pay a premium, and all of these different things. Oh, wait. And then they become uninsurable. You haven't been in business long enough to see somebody come uninsurable? Yeah, well, it happens, right? Um Structure does matter. Should you live and die on structure? Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, anyway, that's another example of the agent advisors' inability to convey the power of Nelson's work and dividend-paying whole life insurance to to force it down into an illustration rate of return or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a weakness. That, that they should spend time trying to improve their yeah, understanding, and,
1: and it, it's a lot of these dynamics all kind of flow together. So, like that, what you're describing so frequently comes with these different marketing strategies, where it's always showing the tabular detail, maybe even the raw tabular detail from the illustration document itself, or just the you know copy paste of it. But
0: or the third, I love the third party. Uh, software. It's numbers on a spreadsheet. Oh, my gosh. To yeah. manipulate. Yeah. That's the point. Okay. And then uh, the presentation
1: of those numbers and the emphasis is always on a larger cash value figure earlier. Like the, the idea of a, a policy being a, a structure into which cash flow where you're, you're going to have inflow and outflowing cash for the rest of your life. Like that... That whole idea is gone. It's, it's just about how do, we, how do we manufacture, how do we generate this cash value as early as possible, and that's assumed to just be – that's why it's always so implicit. I like guess I don't even know of sources where the, the, this implicit assumption of high cash value earlier where the argument for that is actually made. Like why would that be a good thing? It's just it's just sort of (laughs) assumed that higher, earlier, better. But it that jumps over the effect in the long run and the implications of a longer term perspective have are meaningful in the present. Right. You're going to do different things. You're going to you would select or it the idea would be that it would cause you to select different things in the policy purchasing process. Like your perspective will have an influential effect on the, on the nature of what you do today. So if you don't talk through the perspective, if you don't specify the term over which you're attempting uh, uh, ostensibly to optimize, you're going to, you're going to end up with something different in the, in the, in the present. And then ultimately in the long term, right? Uh, and then all sorts of things come in to compound that like if you consider that statistically speaking the older you get the more money you'll make the uh you can only get so much insurance you can only have so much death benefit you're only going to be able to get as you've pointed out only going to be able to get insurance for so long and so many amounts like your the the nature of your relationship with the industry in terms of what you can get the the right to pay in, in premium will vary over time and so there are implications there, right? Like, how would I then approach the the initial layout, the foundation of my system that's going to grow over time, given those considerations about the way the industry operates and how much they'll let me have and when they'll let me have it? Like, I'm gonna that'll affect how I do things. Well,
0: hell, we don't want to talk about all of
1: that. I just want to get
0: down to an internal rate of return. This number's bigger than that number. Comparing illustrations when the construct. Of the policies are different, right. and everything about them is different. Other than they've been maybe they've been issued by a mutual life insurance company. Right, there's I, some I mean, basic similarity. Yeah, they, but then, they may or may not pay dividends, depending on if there's a loan outstanding or not. There's some limiting factor on how much death benefit you can get through a PUA or a ratio of premium. No kidding, you mean the life insurance company is limiting their exposure to your death in? Life insurance? Mm. Oh, what a concept! And what do you mean by that, Jane? Well, you can only have. I. It's like so. This is has been presented as a fundamental unknown truth, which speaks to the correct structure. Oh, you can only put ten times the PUA to uh, premium Uh, to the PUA compared to the base. Oh, you can only use 12 times the death benefit on the PUA compared to the base. Oh, you can only use 10 times the term rider death benefit compared to the base. Oh, you can only put 10 times premium into the PUA compared to the base in year one. And then in year two, it's three times. And then year three and beyond, it's only two times. And if you don't do that... 7 years after this the or if you don't do that years 2 through 7 you you lose a right to even do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of these things and they're different across the countries and limitations. That was very
1: good though. I know exactly what you're talking about. Right <laughs> Thank
0: now. you. Yeah, it's like it it's it's not some thing that I discovered you discovered an agent or advisor discovered that's going to make the difference for you to close the gap. <laughs> it ain't right. That ain't yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So, um I air, and I'm a, I'm kind of a non-technical person. I mean, I, I can uh you know, do repairs mechanically, you know, I've done all all of that I want to in my life. I built fences, barns, houses, you know. I, I mean, I'm somewhat of a technical person. Um but I don't want to get lost in the technicalities unless it's a deal breaker. You know, something technically, I want to know the rules of the game, mm-hmm. right? And there's obviously, there's some technicalities involved in that. And I want to know what they are. I want to know where the third rails are, right? <clears throat> but, and I, I love numbers and I love math. I don't like all the equations, but I love na- I love math and I love numbers, but I don't have to be a mathematician. I mean, I've been enough of a mathematician with life insurance to know, and and I've got mathematician as clients, mathematicians. They're you're not going to outmath the life insurance company. Yeah, it, it is not going to happen. It isn't going to happen, right? And so, oh, for the financial advisor, you you can create whatever kind of an illustration that you want, you know, and kind of going back to, you know, you build an illustration and you get down to the. To the reasons why proving that, you know, supporting why a policy is structured the way it is mathematically, it's always with uh, some third party software. Well, if I have 90% cash value or 80%, whatever the big number is of cash value in the PUA in year one, then I can exercise my right to borrow that value, that amount from the life insurance company, and then go create a rate of return there. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to compare that to cash. I'm going to compare that. I'm going to compare the real estate and the always up market and only do deals for 20%. I mean, what basis am I going to add and use this third-party software to create all these fabulous numbers when the structure
1: was wrong? Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a thorough uh, explanation of that on whatever
0: video it
1: is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, there never is, right? And getting caught up in
0: the... Is there even a video? Yeah. You know, it's like you click in, watch this webinar. And it's like, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. I
1: And I agree. Like you can, you can get hung up on the internal computational technicalities. And I don't like this. I don't enjoy this, but when people send me their spreadsheet and I know it's all in good faith and we're learning. They're just trying to close the gap. People are just trying to close the gap. Yep. It's probably the title of this episode. Um, <laughs> av people <laughs> um but but and I, that certainly frustrates me in looking at the spreadsheets and hey i built this model given the, the numbers on the page does this help or advance or clarify and it's like yeah probably not not really interested in reading all that i get all that i think the the approach to the internal actuarial technicals People sort of assume that that means we're going to go do some computation and compare numbers on a page. And that is not what I mean. Like, I think you can study the, in essence, non-quantitative, but still mathematical design of these policies, right? like understanding the relationship between the categories of the numbers, you know, how mortality experience interacts with net single premiums, interacts with net level premiums, interacts with cash values, interacts with death, like understanding those functional relationships. And there is a mathematical relationship between them. I think there's ways to do that in a pretty non quantitative non-computational fashion like you don't have to sit i think it can be helpful to like do a highly abstracted example of going from a mortality table to let's say the calculation of a net single premium and then the net level premium that could be interesting to somebody and that would be quantitative but i don't think it's necessary i think you can explain conceptually the relationship between these numbers in a fashion that Generally hasn't been done. That I think you could maybe, maybe from the outside looking in, would say, "Oh, that's super technical." But I don't think it. I don't think it's necessarily a a mental holdup. People who genuinely genuinely want to explore are, I think, might be interested in in something that explores that non quantitative mathematical setup a little bit more closely. That's what I'm talking about. Because there's always going to be people; always will find a reason to say no. And there's absolutely a sense in which additional mathematical type work or, or study of the internal actuarial mechanics, I'm sure that'll be used as a source of resistance. And what about I'm sure. No doubt in my mind. But I think that it would be helpful for people who, are, who just plainly want to know. And it supports, I keep going back to this, but it supports... All other kinds of conclusions that you'd come to when when thinking about IBC in the context of conventional insurance, like it, it supports why cash value is different in nature than value in something like a stock portfolio or tax qualified plan or whatever real estate, whatever else it is. It supports all that. Uh, it supports fears about inflation. You know, mm. there's a dollar-denominated asset <clears throat> right. that you know that that values in U.S. dollars. The dollar's going to collapse. Blah, blah. It's like, yeah, no. This is really about again the relationship between numbers over time. And if one understood the nature of cash value, then in a in a threatening uh, price inflationary environment, you would want even more of this, right? You would want to expose even more Absolutely. of your ongoing premium to this systematically compounding growth curve right you're literally offsetting the fault your relative fall in purchasing power in the rest of the economy by boosting your own purchasing power relative to your annual cash flows i right, So, you, but if you understood the nature of the contract just again mathematically conceptually but not necessarily quantitatively if you still understood those relationships that would it would help clarify that dynamic uh i think that, it's those are just examples
0: you know? absolutely possible to help
1: clarify you're skeptical.
0: <laughs> no, not. I'm not skeptical. No, 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 I'm, I'm serious. I, I really, I, I mean, I, I thoroughly agree that, you know, that, that work should be done. I mean. It's fascinating to me, it, you know, like this is really different. Yeah, it. it cause, because it is, you know, yeah. and, it, and it will help a lot of people. Yeah. And there'll be a lot of other people that, you know, yeah, I'm glad that you did that. And I appreciate it you know, seeing that.
1: Yeah. And you know, to me, cause you we were talking about like when I first like light bulb initially went on uh-huh. becoming your own banker, equipment financing, uh-huh. one feeling that came along with that was this kind of, this is going to sound like gooey, I guess, but like, uh, like the excitement that comes with discovering the possibility that there could be a whole other way to go about this compared to a whole system where it's not compelling at all. Right. Like, tax qualified plans, government partnerships, government limits, changing rules, business cycle, you know, the news stories about the collapses in the portfolio, totally unexpected, having to go to back, going back to work, you know, whereas you didn't expect to or you thought you were going to retire and like had this whole other plan in life. And just having this source of late life surprise, you know, to the downside and nothing about like, accentuating or improving your ability to act economically in your own sphere. You know, like there's no 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 discussion really of like how best to manage finances to prepare for the possibility that you might want to go to work for yourself or start a business or just transition to another industry. Like all of that's like considered something else. Whatever that is, it's something else. It's not the domain of financial planning or strategy. That's self-help or psychology or whatever it is. But just to, to think of like, Finance as this thing that you do that excludes all of that preparing for your own type deal preparing for entrepreneurship, accentuating your ability to impose your your will in your own domain. Like that's not part of the discussion. It's just tax qualified plans, major Wall Street corporations, financial products you don't really understand. You know the mutual funds, ETF, exchange traded funds, ETFs. All of this different, all these different machinations. Feeling like you're contributing. To the problem, right? You're supporting these institutions that don't like you, right? I mean, they're all world hoping that you'll be type. wrong and <laughs> it'll turn out really well. Yeah, like, yeah, none of this is built for you. Like I think that the delusion is fairly shattered that Wall Street's not like looking out for you, like how to help you, and you know, the it doesn't take much. Like Nelson used it doesn't take much for the on the tax qualified plan front to start to see through that. Like, yeah. oh, the government's created a program to help me. Oh, you know, how naive. Am I, you know, like, is it pre-covid or post-covid? I mean, it's like uh, um, that is so bleak. Mm-hmm. And if you come at an evaluation of that, like I did, from this Austrian economic business cycle monetary economy or um, yeah, monetary economic type view, that gets depressing. And you can get real lost in the Federal Reserve stuff and the history and all that. It just gets worse, you know. So to to find that book, to find that part of the book and to consider that, wow, there could be a way to exist and operate and manage functionally, deliberately on purpose in the financial domain. That's not all of that. That to me was, um, very exciting, like really exciting. You know, like the kind of thing that changes, I mean, it has obviously changed everything you do. And, so that that part of the conversation with clients where that surprise starts to seep in and you start to hear in their voice that things are going to change because of this reconceptualization of how things work financially. Uh, that's pretty cool, you know? And the hangups, the hangups are going to happen. I think the hangups with the technical stuff is going to happen. But for the genuinely fascinated who want to know more about the how, um, I think I'm going to do a little more stuff on the... Life insurance pricing, that actuarial stuff.
0: We'll wow, see. That was you just went off a cliff, man. You were just like all excited. And, well, I'm, I'm well that's the more. conclusion. Because <laughs> I, I,
1: like, like I've only done so much of it so far, but I my point is, I think there's a lot more room for understanding of the actuarial fundamentals, even though it's not necessary. It's genu- It's not necessary, and I've had to get over that. I'm like, well, you know, this isn't in Nelson's. This isn't in becoming your Own banker. It's not in like foundational documents. Like, is it going to be valuable? It's like, well. I want to understand it better. And I, I think people do too. It's and I, I want to get, I wish more people could have that feeling of surprise. Oh, maybe this is where I'm going with this. I wish more people could experience that same feeling of surprise and discovery in in seeing how things could be different. Right. Not just that they can, which is oh, big deal enough, but to get an idea of how things change over time, I think would be helpful.
0: So there's going to be more of that, is my point. Uh, and I think it would be helpful. Yeah. You know, I, I think the, uh, the feeling that one would get whenever they heard Nelson, uh, I don't care if for the first time, second time, third time, giving his presentation, going through, becoming your own banker. I mean, at some level, at, at, at almost every level, different levels for – the different individuals there was a tremendous element of surprise whether technical you know uh maybe their background the listener had foreclosures you know bankruptcies mm. uh, maybe they uh, were dependent or had been dependent upon third-party lenders you know, maybe they lost money. I mean, they've all had their personal experience and the the, the the diversity of that. And then hearing Nelson systematically walking you through, making you think through the paradigm of what's really going on and then what you've been told without saying these things. Right? Yeah. I mean, he's just walking you through what's really going on in life, what's really going on in the financial world. What's really going on in your personal financial habits? And then educating you very simply on the characteristics of life insurance. And you thoroughly understood that uh, whomever is and was and is performing the banking function is the most profitable person in the conversation. (laughs) And it's likely not you. You know, these... Oh, my gosh. Uh, Surprise, anger, overwhelmed, overjoyed, you know, a lot of different emotional feelings. But knowing, you know, at some level, you might not be able to put your finger on everything, but knowing uh, at some level that you really could make a difference. I mean, there's a tremendous uh, element of hope, you know. Yes. Of real hope, not. That You know, the IRA or 401k is going to get a great big rate of return or whatever. But a real legitimate basis for you, whomever you are, to make a real legitimate improvement and change in not only your life, but the future of your people. Yeah. The, Every time.
1: That so, word relief, that, that is, that, there was a, a relief in that surprise for me. Uh, Because as I've sort of discovered recently, a lot of my own activities uh, are are motivated by the fear of vulnerability, right? (laughs) And one major source of concern of feeling of vulnerability is the potential for just sudden, outside of my control, collapse in financial value, right? And how much you're able to get to in your capital position. Like that is... How that could not be a source of concern to, for people to me is difficult to imagine. Maybe I'm the only one. Maybe people are like me, but not everybody. But I find that to be like fundamental. Right? Nelson used to talk about how the source of most people's problems is money. Right? Um, for me, it's that in particular vulnerability. So to to be exposed to and see to have a sort of g- like general visual understanding. Of this path of like this is possible this is how this would go like here's the track you would run on for that to be there meaningfully like in an understandable intelligible way not i'm gonna get everything not i'm a you know accredited actuary none of that but like sufficient conceptual understanding uh
0: is such a relief it sounds like you you are still going through some of that
1: absolutely yeah it's really well, anytime you turn around and meditate on this kind of stuff, it's again, everything with whole life is conceptual. The policy just enumerates an agreement like the the operating mechanics are fundamentally conceptual. So the more time you spend reflecting on it, the clearer the understanding of this intangible conceptual thing. And yeah, the relief constantly come ba- comes back, comes back and we can connect make this super relevant, connect it to today where you've got bond prices going nuts. You know, the, the federal reserve has, uh, slowed m- money supply growth and outright decreased it as a matter of volume at the fastest rate ever, ever in the history of recorded finance for the fed and, and, and more deeply money supply for the U S like this has been the fastest contraction ever. Um uh, You've, got, you've had a major yield curve inversion, right? This three month secondary over the 10 year, which is now starting to uninvert. And if you look historically, we've talked about this before at different times, and I did the talk and I had the, a, the paper with Bob Murphy on this, but upon reversion tends to be when the formally dated recession begins. Now, that's NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research. They go back, they move start dates. It's all a lag because of employment and GDP data and all of that's arbitrary anyway and the calculation of those numbers change. So whether there's a real recession as people like to talk about it is a different subject. But like the formally identified NBER recession tends to happen right around the time of yield curve reversion. Okay, so we're in the middle of all this now. Uh, The degree of severity has been fairly dramatic. There's been so much... Uh, fiscal spending so-called fiscal dominance on the YouTube financial programs where the government under the auspices of COVID just hands people money that's going to be quickly relatively intensely price inflationary of like stuff that people generally buy as opposed to like shares of stock and stuff so it was and then now you got the Fed whose ostensible role it is to control all that stuff that happens with rising prices but their effect on the monetary side as far on the contractionary side is at odds with or offset by this ongoing stimulative stuff from on the fiscal policy side so you have these offsetting factors prices are not coming down as fast as people thought so you have this you set the stage for A stagflationary type event, like in the 80s, but for reasons that look more like those in the 40s, right? where a bigger factor behind the rise in consumer prices was federal government spending, fiscal policy, as opposed to monetary policy. So you you have the same kind of fiscal dynamics as in the 40s with the kind of money inflationary type dynamics in the 80s. 70s. 70s 70s and 80s combined together now at a much larger scale Right, with advances in technology, right? So part of the SVB collapse was like the speed at which these withdrawals happened. The that caught the Federal Reserve and FDIC system with their pants down, like they didn't have a good response for the technological speed part of this whole of the whole process that happened overnight, quote unquote. Uh, in fact, within a day. So all of those factors together line all that up and say, huh, how, what effect that's going to have. And it's like, let's talk about financial vulnerability now. And you know, in terms of the, uh,
0: we need a digital currency. Uh, That'll solve all of yeah, that. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I, I've heard more now. I don't I wish I had specifics. I will at a future show, but you know, plans talking about making just fiat changes to tax qualified plan holdings. You know, maybe you get some government bonds in exchange for those equities that we're going to have to liquidate. You know, um, anyway, the the that feeling balloon, of relief. That,
0: that balloon has been floated since the creation of qualified plans, <clears throat> really in the 70s. Um, yeah. Anyway.
1: but the feeling of having a path of, I guess my part of my point is when, when that source of vulnerability, when things appear to be getting worse there right the scale is greater the technology is faster the volatility is greater the numbers are larger right like the potential impact from something going wrong in the conventional setting is only intensifying and growing meanwhile i've got this totally other outside different way of thinking that to me is such a profound source of relief and it's so bizarre because often you know not often but occasionally you get people who will talk and have the initial conversation and you can sense hesitation and like wanting to be cautious you know asking sort of not self-censoring but like asking certain questions in a cautious way to kind of navigate forward when in fact you kind of know on the other side of all that there's this what people are really looking for, I think, profound sense of relief and like I have, a, I have a structure. I have this is I'm not participating. You know, I'm just not part. I'm participating in the extreme in my own system, but not. I'm just not going to participate or minimize my participation to practical levels in this whole conventional structure, which serves as such a giant source of fear over vulnerability. Like that. That's ah. Uh, I, I, I really appreciate that. It's, I find all of that very compelling. Like it's motivating to me. And I think if more people saw whole life in this manner, then they would experience some of that relief too, which is, I don't know, the goal, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think that that's a a result. Um, not only a goal, but that, that is a result of practicing the infinite banking concept. And, and at whatever level, I don't I don't care if you're 75 and, you know, you're not ever going to finance anything and you don't have any children or grandchildren, don't need a death benefit and nothing to finance for them. I don't care what kind of an extreme example that you can bring up that uh, might create that post for you to hold on to and say, I'm not interested, which is fine if you're not interested after a thorough investigation. Um, and to still not be interested there's some uh thing deeply held belief scar you know maybe the milkman was a life insurance agent uh you know there's something going on there's a story behind that that you know we can talk about sometime yeah uh it, But I'm just saying that that's a result. When you look up, because I remember when I started, there were so many things that, uh, you know, I heard Nelson in the beginning, you know, this is an exercise in imagination, reason, logic, and prophecy. I heard the word prophecy, you know, for whatever reason, stood out to me. Then he talks about the investors, diversified services that his brother got him involved in. He had to pay a premium, not really a premium, but a, a, an investment. He didn't have any money. You know, they show him this graphic, uh, this stock market graph wave of lies is what else was want say. you don't have, if you had $10,000 now, back then, this is what it would turn in today, what, what it would turn into in the future, but you don't have $10,000, so we'll just start you on this monthly investment program. And you had the initial seven years in. Right. Cause that's where the crossover was from your total investment. If it had a whatever rate of return, that's what the value would be. Mm. You know, uh, American Express bought IDS. All mm. right. And uh, I sold my mother one of those plans. <laughs> and uh, it was with Wad Ellen Reed. Mm. I was with Wad Ellen Reed at the time. And, uh, you know, so I'm hearing these things and they're just like, man. And here I've been in the life insurance business 14 years. No one had ever, ever, ever uh, mentioned the idea that you could control the banking function. And if you did that, it would, um, I don't want to say insulate, but it would dramatically de-emphasize the need or the perceived need of, of some outside investment guru on wall street whatever they promote i mean it was there was a whole lot going on and that i mean all of that my experience your experience your experience exposing yourself to this idea and and understanding and reading and just interpreting chewing on reading chew on and and applying and Nelson's work, Becoming Your Own Banker, and his second book, Building Your Warehouse of Well. That is the shortest path to closing the gap, Hmm. in my opinion. Because you can do really good work on technicals of life insurance, and you should. I think I can do really good work on whatever I put my hand to. I I don't think that it would necessarily shorten the gap for the broadest amount of people or for the average all-American you know, it'd be supportive, no question, because, you know, once you, once you close that gap, you know, you look around, you're the, you're the dang lone ranger. You know, that's why people listen to podcasts like this and why we encourage people to create content and put it, you know, because there's not enough out there and you, we're all feeling like the lone ranger. So other works that are legitimate, not the third party illustrative, you know, manipulated programs to get you to say yes. I mean, no, I'm talking about when the gap is closed. Right. And your comfort level, your confidence level goes up. I mean, it's okay to 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 connect with supportive and understand and read and reread supportive type works and thoughts.
1: Yeah. I think there's a certainly an element of reinforcement.
0: Yes, right? absolutely.
1: Supplemental, reinforcing just raw for me just kind of recreational like i just want to know curious you know satisfying curiosity but reinforcing adding conviction and affirmation you know none of which is necessary i get that but to me it's like it's there you know the it's not been well articulated before um the case for whole life in general has just been bad you know the the, we've talked about the characterization by the companies that uh, in the '80s during the modified endemic contract hearings. You know that no case was made from the perspective of None. the principle of ownership, not even a weak, of equity,
0: not yeah. even a weak case. Yeah. They didn't even attempt to defend themselves, which believes me, makes me believe, leads me to believe that they were in freaking collusion.
1: Yeah, it was. It was. If you're going to penalize us, you know, grandfather everything else in and then, you know, let's have a say, have some hand in the setting of the rules going
0: forward. Yeah. And James, you're just being a conspiracy theorist, a conspiracy theorist. It's collusion. collusion. They deem there is a the greatest wave of demutualization occurred after those hearings. Okay, James, draw the connections for me. Okay, here I'm called before the Senate, and I'm a life insurance, you know, executive, and I'm not even defending my product, my industry, the heritage. I'm just uh, going along and acting like a whipping boy for the Congress, and 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 you know, uh, comparing or opposed to. The, the Wall Street and the term promoters, a bull hockey, bull hockey. <laughs> they showed up and they didn't defend themselves. Right, they didn't. They didn't make a, an argument for mu- mutuality. They didn't make an argument for private ownership. They didn't. They they made no defense or even principles of equity accumulation.
1: Right, that that is the fundamental. That to me is the core of the argument against the idea of of altering you know, downgrading the tax treatment of a, of a contract because of the way in which equity accumulates, right? Too, too much, too soon, you know, it means penalty. Uh, that's a, you know, to really tie this back into what we talked about earlier, that is a violation of these, uh, you know, natural law-based law of equity, law of large numbers, type concepts, right? To transgress against the law of equity on the basis of tax principle, right? The, (laughs) the, the nominal accusation being that, you know, uh, people in whole life are, are going to enjoy this great benefit in, in cash value growth. And that growth is not interrupted by tax and people can get to it by policy loan without triggering tax. And all of that is a threat to these conventional assets, which ones? Well, the governments, of course. How convenient, right? People are going to buy less of the bonds. They're going to buy less of these other products from Wall Street. So we've got to penalize, from a tax perspective, the whole life policy by and, and 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 tag that penalization, tie it to cash value growth, equity growth dynamics, like that. That is to violate the principle of, of equity, right? That's what it, which is. How,
0: Horrible. I mean, oh, that, but, they they violated their their character, their own character. Yeah,
1: the foundational I, I mean, product of the, the yeah. of a whole industry. You know?
0: they, if, if you're if you're willing to violate your personal private, I mean your personal ethics, yeah. right? Your your own character. Well, hell, there's no there's no there's no reason why you wouldn't violate everyone else's, all the policy holders.
1: Yeah, I mean, but I, and that's why yeah. I come back to. Part of the reason for that attitude, yes, there's negligence. Yes, there's yeah. just amoral, like practical. You know, do enough to get the job done now type mentality. You know, smooth it over, minimize damage, all that sort of mentality. There's some of that, but there's also ignorance. Like there, there's also just a um, lackluster, insufficient characterization or understanding of whole life as as property in which you can engineer the growth of financial value right it's always been it's always been billed as or positioned as a source of permanent death benefit and it's like yes it is that (laughs) but what something is technically is different than what something is necessarily like from a meaningful perspective like what it means for your economic life you know like a table is you know a certain kind of wood but what how you interact with a table has very little to do with you know the the biological makeup of the wood right you you regard it not as just a hunk of material but as something meaningful as a tool in your own life same thing with whole life you can yeah it's there it's characterized by permanent death benefit okay but the functional role is different like that case still hasn't been made and, yeah. and, and you could, I think you could follow, like, to, to really pursue that line of thought seriously, I mean, you could then come after, and I maybe one day will, but, like, the, the theoretical justification for this idea of maximum insurability, you know, human life value, right? Like, that, that's suspect to me, you know? That that should be challenged, too. Um, anyway, that's
0: what I've been thinking about,
1: technical makeup of whole life. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that would be helpful. It's it's to me that none of this happens in a vacuum. Going back to the the Senate hearings, attacking whole life insurance, you know, colluding with not only Wall Street and the term promoter, but some of the actual life insurance executives, I believe, were part of that collusion. When you can't defend yourself, you can't defend your clients, you can't defend your 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 existence as a as an entity, and you can't defend your heritage. I mean, there's something wrong. Yeah, I, I
1: think th- I think they saw it as I'm just speculating here. I think they saw it as like a, a an appeasement strategy. Like one, course. the big companies don't really care right like as long as the new policies as long as the policies currently in force aren't effective there's nothing, yeah. as long as there's nothing retroactive and you got these guys making a big fuss and no one wants to be seen as like supporting tax evasion mm-hmm. which is what the implication was that you're dodging taxes and these sure. big financial firms don't want that reputation and you're all the damn they're made up out of whole cloth
0: yeah you're right. the, you're dodging tax. it's a tax loophole for the rich yeah like,
1: shut up and, and they relied on a few, and you can download the exhibits and look at them, but relied on a few, like literally two or three print advertisements from one or two companies to support that claim, right? That, there, that people were, in fact, dodging tax, evading taxes, never mind the fact that, like, having access to more capital might put you in a position to invest at a greater scale and generate relatively greater income and thereby pay more tax, you know, on genuine new production that would have... Would not have come were it not for that systematic capital accumulation in the first place. Never mind all of that, right? That argument, by the way, not ever once made. But there's, I think there's this view of relative ignorance, relative neglect, um, you know, maybe to some degree moral defect, like should have. Why didn't you? That too. Uh, But then just a, a... a failure, an inability, a lack of understanding of what whole life could mean to someone's economic situation outside of the f- raw material fact of more death benefit.
0: Yeah, I like the moral defect, not to not to stop on it. <laughs> but to me, if you can't defend yourself, your heritage, your product, your clients. And then shortly after that, you know I said, oh, there's a great way of a demutualization. Oh, in between that Senate, those Senate hearings, And the demutualization was the introduction to these qualified plans, the simple IRAs Mm -hmm. and all of these products that, that make millions and billions of dollars for Wall Street. Oh, a a competitor to the life insurance industry. And then the, the, uh, no question that the, oh, well, let me go to demutualization, you know, and some of these that have happened, you know, relatively in the last few years, one of them out of, you know, uh, I won't, Going to who they are, but y'all listening that know life insurance know that a Canadian hedge fund, you know, private equity group bought a company out of Ohio, the very old mutual company. They demutualized, so this uh, predatory financial construct could purchase them. Um, just let me, you know, hear me out. Go, go look at the numbers as much as you can get access to. All of the uh, management at the life insurance companies got paid tremendous bonuses. About a tenth of the value was paid out or uh, assigned to the policyholders. I right, think that went through. It's a mutual company, right? The policy owners are the owners of the company. Um, so I'm just saying the math on that up for me, and there were tremendous windfalls for the people in the management. That had a hand in the demutualization of a life insurance company that occurred as well in the nineties, right? So, I think there are some moral uh, defects going on there. Is that what you call it? Moral defect? Yeah,
1: morally, morally
0: defective part um, of the argument or you know feature of the history. Of course, there's some ignorance, you know, maybe. But people are getting paid. Is your point? Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so. um, you know, philosophy does matter. This idea to, I like what you said, which we all get to when we close this gap, the uh, freedom and independence legitimately in the financial world and the de-stress result of, you know, the just the, the result of de-stressing. I don't care what the market does. I don't care what the dollar does. I can't mm-hmm. control it anyway. I don't care whatever the currency is is what they quote unquote what they choose it to be
1: yeah. yeah it would be interesting maybe through like a set of freedom of information act requests to get from the insurance commission in ohio the documents pertaining to that demutualization to the extent that you could see where the money went i would expect that you'd probably be able to see quite a bit i mean you know you can get the entire financial reports like a 250 page document with all sorts of very in-depth financials on these companies uh, from National Association of Insurance, Insurance Commissioners and or from directly, for, they just get it from the commissions. And the commissions, there's, these are public commissions, everything's subject to Freedom of Information Act rules. So anything that's not like, there's certain very limited restrictions about um, proprietary information, that type of thing. But as far as just broad data, of, like what's happened, there's a lot of that nobody looks into it of course there's been i think there's been literally zero work on that particular demutualization it'd be interesting to see because it was private equity plus a pension fund got together and yeah that'd be really that'd be interesting yeah
0: all right what else i had fun yeah barbecue time yeah thanks for listening bye y'all